Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. It's a privilege and a joy to be able to share these conversations and topics that we do with you. Now, this week's episode features a conversation that I had with Martin Cooper. Martin is the Principal Lecturer of Songwriting and Head of Music Theory at BIM, which stands for the British and Irish Modern Music Institute. He's also an elder at King's Church Eastbourne, part of New Ground Churches, and someone with over 20 years experience experience in both Christian worship and in worship leading. And for today's episode, I left the chilly familiarity of my garden shed and went on location to his studio, which was very exciting. I hope you enjoy the crisp sounding audio in today's conversation. We had a fascinating conversation around music theory, what makes for good music, and we settled the age old discussion about what matters most, melody or lyrics in songs, as well as discussing exactly what it is that makes for good worship music. Now, just before we dive into it, I'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying the podcast or if you have perhaps suggestions of topics or guests that maybe you'd like to see us have on the podcast. You can reach me by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. I'd love to hear from you. Also, if you like the show and think it's worth sharing with others, make sure to hit the like and subscribe button and get the word out there wherever you can. Now... Over to my conversation with Martin, live and on location in his studio. I hope you like it. So, Martin, um, we had a conversation a couple of years ago now. We did. In a minibus on the way back from a conference. And um, you just kind of spun my mind a bit with some of your music theory stuff. (laughs) And ever since then, I've thought, I really want to get some of that stuff recorded and share with people because um, I think it would help not just Christians in general, but worship leaders in particular, songwriters in our churches in particular. Yeah. Um, why don't we start though with just, uh, how did you get into the music industry and uh, when did it become such a, a big interest of yours? Okay, music industry. So I did my degree in English, English literature, language and literature. Um, I then studied music for a year after that because I was always interested in music. I'd, I'd been playing music for a while at that point. I knew people from church that worked for Kingsway and ICC, and I knew people that could help me get into the Christian music scene as far as working goes, which I did. Um, I did a lot in the Christian music scene um, from 1998 until about 2005. Um, and then 2006, I started working at BIM in Brighton. Um, so my kind of, I don't want to use the word career in Christian music because I don't like using that word, but I just have on the podcast. Um, that sort of segued into working at BIM in 2006. Well, even, in, you know, your kind of nervousness of using that word career exposes part of the challenge yeah. that we might perhaps going to talk about is... And it's a challenge for anyone in ministry. Yep. When you get paid to do something, it inevitably becomes a career, or it can do. But it's also a, a passion, a calling, something that's close to your heart. And so any Christian worker has to navigate that tension. But um, why, why, why music? Why worship? How did that? Why was that such a, a passion of yours? When did that become a big interest? Yeah. Um, so I started being interested in music. Actually, the first two of the early things I remember in my life. Well, the day that John Lennon died, um, 1980, I think it was, I was a young kid then, and I remember my dad coming upstairs to say to my mum, terrible news, John Lennon's just died. 
I'd never heard of John Lennon. And I remember at the time thinking, I've never heard my mum and dad talk about this John Lennon guy that they obviously know because they're both devastated that he's died. And then I found out who he was and who the Beatles were. And I remembered um, for about the next two weeks, Beatles films were just shown back to back on BBC. So after school, I'd get in from school and we'd watch a Beatles film and listen. Your mum and dad would listen to Beatles music. And it struck me even at an early age then that how important music is to people because the whole world seemed to stop at that point when John Lennon died and I had no idea who he was. And then just a few years later, um, when Live Aid happened in 1985, again, you know, the entire world seemed to stop and take note of what was happening in Ethiopia at the time. Music seems to be something that everybody can find important and everybody can find inclusivity in and everybody can come together. I guess subconsciously that seeped in then and it was always something that I found fascinating. The reason I got decided to pursue it was that during my English degree, my dad died fairly suddenly or fairly quickly. I took stock of life. I'd only been a Christian about a year at this point. I was finding being a young Christian with my dad, just I'm the, I'm the only Christian in my, or I was the only Christian in my family. So, you know, it wasn't like we had faith to share amongst us with my mum and my brother and so on. So I was, you know, it was a tough time when my dad died. Um, and I thought, I, I just, I like music. I'm just going to go and do music for a while and see what happens. So I did that at the end of my degree. And it just turned into something that carried on, really. Mm. And so did you find in music help, helped you to process some of your grief as well? That's a good question. Yeah, I I can remember actually specific times of listening to specific songs and, mm. you know, struggling my way through things by listening, almost deliberately listening to specific songs to kind of process grief and try and move through out to the other side of it and um, and some challenges as well. You know, I said I was a, as a young Christian, mm. just beginning to get into what the Christian life is and knowing God and relationship in God and, and, and some challenges as well of kind of, you know, singing truth about God and thinking I've only just really begun to understand this and now I've got to process this thing at the same time. And mm. I think one of the things that really helped back then, which would have been mid nineties, so much of the theology or truth that I took on board, you know, let kind of seep into my, my life. Um, came from songs, came from worship songs. So I think, you know, long before I knew the lyrics of a lot of the songs we were singing were from the Psalms or from Galatians or from Ephesians, I, I didn't at that time know that we were singing deep truths from Galatians. I just knew it's a song. Mm. But I think looking back now, part of processing that time of grief was typically in those days, the songs which we used to sing were so heavily centered on deep truth you know straight from the bible that a lot of my theology came from songs before it came from the bible which was a good thing and i think sort of thinking this morning that in a lot of ways that sort of thing seems to have have disappeared to a large extent and now we sing more about emotional responses and sort of singing around our lives congregationally rather than so much you know today we're singing this and we're singing this and we're singing this and so much truth got into me mm. as a young christian straight from the bible from songs mm. and i know we'll no doubt come on to 
talk more about the responsibility then of songwriters in the songs that we write and the, actually the responsibility of elders and leaders in churches not abdicate that responsibility of, you know, just let them choose the songs. We'll come back to that because I think there's, you know, there's an inevitably a, a place that this conversation will go. But I, I'm also just really interested in, you know, John Lennon, the awakening of realising through the death of John Lennon and, and Live Aid how significant music is in bringing people together. And then as a Christian, discovering that music is a is a form of uh, discipleship. We, we find it's the language of our hearts a lot of the time helps us to process our emotional life and engage with God. So I, that I find just really quite fascinating about what it means to be a human being. And as someone who teaches on this, why is that? Like, where does that come from? Um, why is music so... So important to human cultures. Let's start with that one. <laughs> well, that's a small question. Yeah, Let's just five minutes. rattle through that one. <laughs> Why is it so important to human cultures? Um, uh, or human beings, right? Like, we see, I mean, cultures are a reflection of the beings. <laughs> I mean, at various times in history, songs were how people learnt. <laughs> you know, that's how you learn. If you, if you don't read and don't write and there's no internet and there's no printed press and so on, how do you actually tell people what's happening in the world? Well, a lot of the kind of long, you know, war folk songs and so on were just, well, this is what's happening in the world and this is how we pass it along to each other and teach children what's happening in the world. So, and doing that in song, you know, is a way to to remember it. I mean, for you and I and everybody, you know, the first things we learn when we're kids is kind of rhythmic patterns and nursery rhymes and, we can still remember all those things now because that's how you remember and how you learn. So I think there's just a inbuilt reception, I think, in people of just learning patterns and learning rhythms and learning melodies and you never forget them once you've learnt them. Um, and a lot of pop songwriting, for want of a better word, whether it's the Beatles or whoever or whoever, you know, or Chris Tomlin um, and Hillsong and that kind of thing, a lot of it is just, or at its best, I think it's deep biblical truth set in a way that everybody can sing it and everybody can take it on board and everybody can, you know, mm. worship do you have any just theories about again why it is that we're made like that? Why why is it that rhythm and rhyme and repetition or whatever? Why is it that's more memorable to us um, than straightforward lessons? Yeah, I think so. There's been studies that show that you know there's studies that show what is the kind of optimal tempo of a song? How fast or slow do people like songs? You know, and Round about 120 beats a minute has been shown, you know, in studies, in scientific studies. That's just a sweet spot of people at large like that as a tempo, partly because it makes us feel good. So for I think that there was a trend for five years in a row where the average speed, average tempo of songs on Spotify was round about 95 beats a minute for five years in a row. So music was getting slower and sadder, basically, and people wanted slower and sadder music. At the end of each year, the average tempo of songs on Spotify was 95 bits a minute. And then suddenly, last year, the average tempo 
of songs on Spotify was 122 beats a minute because during the pandemic, people didn't want to feel sad anymore. They didn't choose to listen to somber, melancholy songs. If you're stuck at home in lockdown, as we all were, then you want to feel better. And suddenly everybody gravitated. You know, nobody said, I'm going to listen to a faster song. I'm going to listen to 120 beats a minute, 120 beats a minute. But we all went, I just need to feel better today than I did you know, when I woke up. And that's a tempo that we as humans gravitate towards because it makes us feel better. Mm. Partly because, um, again, the studies have kind of shown that there's an innate clock inside us. We all live our lives to 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes an hour and 24 hours in a day and so on. And 120 beats a minute is obviously two beats per second and so on. So there's just this kind of inbuilt sense of rhythm, a, a metronome inside us that we just move to that tempo and we walk to that tempo as well. So the average walking pace kind of slots in with the rhythm of a clock and rhythm of a metronome and how fast we want to move naturally and how fast we do move naturally. So there is just this kind of way we're built that just works at some tempos and makes us feel happy at some tempos and deliberately makes us reflective at some tempos and so on and so forth. So um, I don't know if that, does that answer yeah, your question? No, or am I just rambling no, about no, no, time? Because, <laughs> I mean, you, you notice it, don't you? Your, your, mood does re- your, your mood is reflected in your pace. Yeah. If, if you're reflective or sad, you go slow. If you're excited, you go fast. And it's and it's not always the case that if you are excited, you go fast. It's if you go fast, you get excited. If you go slow, you get reflective. Yeah. And I know we, we've talked to Krista Friend on here as a psychiatrist, and she talks about the engaging the parasympathetic system. That just things that we do, our body, the way we move our body changes our mood. So I know we, that idea isn't too new to us, but it's the um, you know, as, as we've said, we've had a conversation before where you, you pointed out. The, our very first experience of the world is of music in the womb. We hear, you know, internal sounds from our mothers, and no, most noticeably, the heartbeat. What's so? Are you? Are you? Is the average heartbeat 120? What's the heartbeats per minute as well? What? No, that's, that sounds a bit fast. That's <laughs> fast. <laughs> it's. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know. I know that in in clubs, for example. So if a DJ has got a a music set on throughout an evening in a club, it will pretty much start at, for example, 80 beats a minute. And by the end of the evening, the tempo of the music is 137, I think, pretty much in clubs, um, which basically goes with the heart pace, heartbeat pace of people in the clubs. So you start here at somewhere around 80 beats a minute and you end here at somewhere around 137 beats a minute. So the music begins at 80 beats a minute, where your heart is naturally just pacing itself, mm-hmm. and you end more energetically at the end of the night on 137 beats a minute, where the heart is naturally following suit or vice versa. So there, there is definitely a, a link between tempo and heart rate, a kind of, you know, the way they marry each other. Um, I know my resting heart rate from my watch that tells me is is generally round about 60 beats a minute, 62 mm. beats a minute. So mm. if I'm static or if I'm just living my normal day, 
my heart pretty much beats round about one beat a second, and obviously that's part of what gets in into my brain. And music at 120 beats a minute is double my resting heart rate and so on. So I think there is definitely a link between just literally, like you said, how we're formed and how we then perceive mm. and receive. And actually, music. I think the the link, that, going back to your earlier comment about how human cultures um, transferred information stories and lessons through song and the way that we're built as human beings as musical creatures that points to the kind of the double dynamic that goes on in music that you can manipulate or motivate depending on your motives um you can manipulate just through the pace of a music but then also through the content of the songs yeah. can't you and and that's what so that's where my mind starts to go when I hear you talk about this is that we are the music that we listen to the content of the the stories in our music that we listen to like you talked about as an early christian the the themes of the songs shape you and I think particularly when you're a new christian the, the formative years do seem to be pretty formative and, and once they're set they're set you learn your theology in the first few years of your christian life a lot of the time that doesn't get easy to get unpicked um for good or for bad and so I guess you know you talk about how to make songs catchy or, or how to manipulate mood through the, the beat of the music. But I know you've also spoken to me before about the kind of content, not just the content of the lyrics, but the, the noises that we make and the attractiveness or the, the stickability of the sounds yeah. that people make. It's just um, remind me again, some of the, the, the things you've shared before about pop music yeah. and um, where and why some of our songs are more popular than others. Yeah. So one of the... Um... One of the songs that I use as an example in, in songwriting lectures is um, the, the first track from The Greatest Showman soundtrack from a few years back now, uh, The Greatest Show, and kind of do this little study in the lesson on on the first five seconds of that song because, yeah, I mean, that I think that's still the biggest selling album of the 21st century, The Greatest Showman soundtrack. It's either that or Adele, but, you know, it's right up there as everybody's heard it and everybody likes it. And I'm always fascinated by, you know, why why does everybody like this song and not everybody at all likes this song and they're not that different? So what are the differences between the one that we all like and the one that is more of a niche song, if they're similar? And I remember watching The Greatest Showman with my kids when they were a few years younger now and, and listening to the songs. And it struck me during the first five seconds of that film and the first five seconds of the first song, what happens is the very first thing that we hear isn't words, it's basically a sound. It's that whoa sound. So you don't need to speak any particular language to make that sound. You don't really need to be able to sing to make that chant, really. It's not in harmony, so you don't need to process music at all. It's just lots of voices on the recording singing the same note as if it's a football stadium or whatever. So the first thing you hear in that song is just lots of people in unison singing a sound, basically. And then the very next thing that you hear is a very definite rhythm of... And that's it, right? And if you're familiar with that soundtrack, that's not drums, it's people stamping on the floor. So again, you don't need to be a drummer to do that. You can just stamp on the floor and do that. And then that kind of links itself deliberately to huge songs like We Will Rock You, Queen. It's literally the same thing. You know, it's the same thing. 
of people just stamping on the floor. So your brain, if you've ever heard We Will Rock You, which most of us have, you watch The Greatest Showman and within five seconds, you've linked it to a song that you've known for years. Mm. You, you've linked it to not even needing to speak a language or play an instrument. You can sing it and you can play it straight away. And basically the whole song then progresses with one little simple thing after another and it kind of blends hip-hop and trap influences with pop and rock and gospel all in the same song. And by the time you've built it on a foundation of very simple melody that pretty much anyone can sing, very simple rhythm that you don't really even need to play an instrument to replicate, and then you're pulling in influences which are going to appeal to lots of people, it's sort of not surprising that it became the biggest selling album of the 21st century and a film which everybody loved because most people wouldn't realise why they liked it, but there's hundreds of reasons why it appeals to you and the person next to you and the person next to them because it's all, feed, uh, in, in a good way, it's feeding what everybody is already familiar with mm. in a nice tidy package of pop. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would, would watch the film and think of it that, that one's success and think, oh, the success of that film is because of the the themes in the film that we resonate and we like the kind of the progressive tones of it and you know the celebration of diversity and the, the honouring of people. We love that. But actually, the reason it's so popular is the package it comes in, yeah. which is a package that bypasses the intellect yeah. and goes straight to the, the gut and the heart yeah. and, and moves you as a musical man, yeah. uh, as a creature. Why this is, works, it becomes sticky and attractive it yeah. gets to your heart very quickly yeah. and then you find yourself singing the songs and the content of the songs gets in and it gets into you and shapes the way that you think and changes the values that you hold yeah. which again is the power of music to bypass the rationality yeah. and change the way that people think and see the world well that's the thing you know, with that film there was obviously in the film it is a nice saccharine sugary package of niceness and doesn't deal with any of the darker side of Barnum's character and, you know, all the stuff that wouldn't have made it a popular film. It just doesn't even deal with them at all. It just ignores them and turns it into this just inclusive thing that we can all buy into and makes us happy. Which, again, so you immediately you can jump to the responsibility of people in doing that. Yeah. But there are who write those songs and write those films. But, again, there are other songs as well. Once you start, Once you point out that one and We Will Rock You... There are others you realise the reason these songs are so popular isn't actually because of the lyrical content so much as it is the the rhythm and the beat and the the, yeah. the sounds that it's inviting me to make so I can join in and feel like it's mine. Yeah. Um, what? But what is the interplay or the you can't say percentage? But what? How much do lyrics matter in a song's <laughs> success, or is it much more about these tricks? <laughs> wow. Well, did this lecture last week actually okay. at BIM and um, it is divisive you know when you say to a room of songwriting students which is most important melody or lyrics it, it's immediately divisive for lots of reasons um, partly because the songwriting student's brain immediately goes down the road of melody equals pop I don't want to just do corporate pop I want to tell stories I want to tell truth in my songs and so on. So there's this kind of divide or divisive thing with songwriting students that they tend to associate 
truth and art and pop and you know business basically because a lot of like you just said pop songwriting these days it's it's rhythm rhythmic hooks it's melodic hooks it's you know how quickly can you get um earworm into someone that they don't forget you know nursery rhyme kind of uh, melody and rhythm what's your personal opinion on how which matters more in a, a song okay. success my personal opinion okay so my personal opinion would be as a as pop perfection there is the greatest showman and those kinds of massive you know songs that appeal to everybody on earth living on a prayer everybody on earth has heard living on a prayer you know, there are songs that just we all know. Everybody on earth knows them. ABBA, lots of ABBA songs. We all know ABBA songs, whether we're, you know, eight years old, like my youngest daughter or me or my mum. We know ABBA because they're just brilliant pop songs. Um, I think for those kinds of songs, it's the perfect marriage of melody and lyric where anyone in the world can sing it and it means something to you. You know, when you're in a football stadium or wherever on the train listening to Living on a Prayer, they're singing about you. It's your life they're singing about and the person next to you's life and my life and his life and her life. It's, you know, it's universally, yeah, that's my story. And I think the songs which really stand the test of time are the ones that you can sing them and it's your story as well that you can identify with. So like Castle on a Hill, Ed Sheeran, a few years ago, very popular because it was just evocative of a lot of people's childhoods. Yeah. He was like, oh, I remember being a teenager and doing this and doing that. I remember these memories I had of yeah. these great sunsets and these, you know, beautiful sights. And- yeah, exactly. There's this, there's this phrase in songwriting of um, the more specific you are, the more universal the appeal, where people sort of mistakenly assume that if you leave it vague, everyone can make their own story from it. But actually the opposite is true, where if actually if you give people names and dates and places and times and settings, mm. then that then the listener can just drop themselves into the story. It's like, oh yeah, that sunset, that place where I was sitting then on that seafront, you know, it's like, yeah, it might be a different seafront with different people on a different year, but it's still me and my friends and my seafront. So if you can get into people's lives you know make them buy into the story you're telling about them mm. in pop songwriting for mm. example then then that's a good thing and if you do that with melody and the story perfect yeah i guess the caveat to that would be or, or the actual answer to your question if it's not literally you know best case scenario marry melody and lyric and create something that everybody can just believe in and buy into if not that, in pop songwriting, because most most of the work that I do these days is much more pop-focused as opposed to congregational song-focused. Um, still do some of that at church, but, you know, um, work is much more pop-focused. Melody is much more important, much more important. Melody and rhythm of vocal, rhythm of singing, is more important than lyric in most of... I think in most of pop music. Um, I guess the challenge is for a lot of people that they've got to have a truth that's worth telling. Yeah. They've got to have a message they really want to put out there. 
and um, and actually just making people feel better isn't probably a, a lasting enough truth or, or motive to you know to keep you going for a long period of time. No. You're not able to write a few good songs, yeah. but for, for to write stuff that's going to keep going and whatever. But it strikes me there's a similar conversation I know as a as a pastor as a preacher that I remember reading that your goal is to get to people's feet. You want them to move, to change, to do something different. And the way you get there is. You want you want it to be informed by the head, but you you move the feet by going from the head to the heart to the feet, and we've all been in sermons where someone gets to your heart and your heart moves your feet. You know, emotionally you're stirred, but it it runs out after a while because sooner or later your emotional emotions fade and you end up going, why am I walking? Why am I going anywhere? <laughs> yeah. But it's only when the the intellect the mind's been transformed and changed that you, your mind actually can keep going even after the emotions have faded. But you often get to it through the heart and it's that kind of that conversation isn't it yeah. Between, you really want to change someone and move someone through your songs you can do it through the sugar yep. you know put, give them a sugar rush of melody but actually if you want it to last long it's got to combine both and if you want to bring about meaningful change in someone you've got to give them truth as well yeah. you know the apostle Paul's be transformed by the renewal of your mind um what i find interesting is how you know how human this is this isn't because as Christians and as charismatic Christians, we we know the, the beautiful, sacred experiences of being in congregational worship times and experiencing the presence and power and beauty of God there. And it moves you and it's, it's very impactful. But it's not reserved to just the, that's not just a uniquely Christian experience at a Christian church service. Yeah. And often Christians get confused when they go to a football stadium or they go to a, a festival of just a regular band and they experience the same level of inspiration and movement. Yeah. Christians can be confused and think, oh, is that God? Was that not God? Is this just manipulation? Is Am I just, how, how have you thought through that experience is that something you've grappled much with personally or helped christians think through um good question thanks <laughs> thanks um i remember a few years ago being at anfield watching liverpool oh, i'm sorry no it's a good thing don't worry <laughs> it's a very good thing jez um and i remember i've only been to anfield once to watch one game and standing at anfield was amazing but there was Obviously, a moment before the match where every match, the crowd sings You'll Never Walk Alone, the whole crowd. And I remember standing there singing You'll Never Walk Alone and listening to You'll Never Walk Alone being sung in that stadium in Liverpool and thinking, I don't know if I've ever heard anything like this, ever. And it was a real challenge because, you know, I've I've travelled a lot playing, at, playing in the worship band at conferences and it's only a new day and, and around the world. Um, and I remember standing at Anfield thinking, I'm not sure I've ever heard as passionate singing as right now with people singing about a football team, which was a real challenge to me. And it might just be that I was caught up in that moment of thinking that, but I remember consciously thinking, it's a bit uncomfortable because I don't often hear this kind of passion. You know, I haven't often heard this kind of passion in, in, in the places I've been or the times I've sung in. Um, and there was no manipulation in that. It was just gen genuine, we are Liverpool. We are here in this stadium singing our songs to each other and for each other and for the team. Um, which also it doesn't answer your question at all. Um, 
No, you identify with the challenge. I think every Christian to some level experiences. I, 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 I would have a similar experience from going to the, a, a cinema to watch a film mm. and that moment of inspiration of like, I can take the world, but it's not take the world for Jesus. It's just take the, take the world yeah. because the story has inspired me. Yeah. Stories, music, those sorts of experiences. And that's what fascinates me is that this is so human. Mm. And... And for me, it points to this, the truth that all truth is God's truth, that we live in an enchanted world and we mustn't create a secular, sacred divide as though God is only in, only in the Christian songs yeah. and God is only in the sermons. Now, I think I, we could go further and, and recognise there's power in idolatry, there's power in worshipping the true God, because we're religious creatures in one sense. We're born to worship. And so when you worship, you experience the power of worship. It, the, the difference is often around the object of your worship and its impact on you and how life-giving or life-stealing that is. I think that's that's how I've kind of processed it. But I'm, just, I'm really fascinated by that. How did you then, as a worship leader, as a Christian in congregational worship, think, what do I do about this? Why are they more passionate than Christians? Why, why, are they, why am I experiencing this here at a football stadium and not, and not in churches? Yeah. What, how did you process that after the event? Um, I mean, this was a few years ago now, so I've, I've been processing it for, for a while. Um, and I keep coming back to how vitally important truth in songs is, like the truth, deep truth in songs. Like I was saying, you know, when I was a young Christian, my dad had just died. I didn't really have many friends. I'd lost most of my non-Christian friends because I wasn't really hanging out with them anymore. I didn't really have that many friends at church at that point and felt pretty alone. Um, but it was the truth that was sinking into me that was life breathing, you know, cause it's like, well, whether I knew it or not, I had truth just going into me and going into me all the time. And I think that let's just look up this verse that's yeah. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, the more, the more I live and the more I think about it and the more reflecting on things like being at Anfield and singing You'll Never Walk Alone with passionate, you know, zealous people, the more I I want, you know, the word of Christ to dwell in us richly in our songs, you know, so that actually the way it's explained there, you know, where it, it it's it's a teaching thing, you know, let it dwell in you rich, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, if our songs are built on the word of God and we're able to teach ourselves and each other through that, and admonish ourselves and each other through that and you know sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs by having the word of god dwell in us that's going to bring life build life you know to where like you said just now where you have something going into your head into your heart to your feet that i think is the way to do it you know let the word of christ dwell richly in you and then head heart feet where i find myself struggling sometimes to engage with songs it it's almost where i'm thinking i don't really feel this emotion that this song is telling me i should be feeling at the moment and because i don't feel it you know i can't really engage with it in a way that if it was just telling me here's god and here's the word of god being kind of you know infiltrating into me it doesn't really matter how i feel or what's happening in my life at that point it's just a truth which i can always 
use always you know have built into me so i do tend to struggle sometimes with songs where i'm just going this is kind of true but it's really just a song about how i feel and i don't really want to sing a song about how i feel i mean even this sunday coming i don't know what date this is going to be going out but you know i'm leading worship this sunday at church for the first time in a while i tend to just lead worship now as and when i'm needed to and obviously sitting here right now with russia invading uh, ukraine yesterday this sunday at church you know it's really important that we worship god and we sing truth and what i'm anxious not to do is just <laughs> use songs particularly this week you know every week but particularly this week where it's just this is how i feel this is how we feel this is this thing that's happening that we need to kind of process and actually just to head into it going actually firstly we need to process how awesome god is and how great god is and you know obviously you know we're going to be praying for ukraine and obviously like every like everyone is like every church is but it's got to be built on we're going to worship god mm. and sing truth and have truth built into us yeah so as you're speaking i'm just thinking of jesus saying in the world you'll have trouble but take heart for I've overcome the world. What we're talking about when we're talking about worship songs, we're talking about how to take heart, how to get something into our heart. And we get something into our heart, Jesus says, by remembering I've overcome the world. And uh, and that, so I know the, the conversation, these conversations can quickly move to, so what are your favourite songs or worst songs? You know, these songs are bad, these songs are good when it comes to Christian worship. Um but I think, first of all, it's just recognising the power that songs have to teach, to equip, to refocus your mind. Because it get, when you sing, you engage your emotional life, which then reorients the way that you're thinking about something because your emotions are engaged. And it's just being aware of the responsibility of that, that this is a tool for discipleship. Um, you said earlier that um, songwriters will think, oh, I just want to tell my truth. And first and foremost, as Christians, we've got to have a truth to tell. And that truth... In a society like ours, our truth is our personal story. But actually, as Christians, we've got something much more true than our personal story. We've got the gospel story. Um, and so maybe this is just more of a general question than about not so much music, but just how do you then as a Christian or someone who trains worship leaders, how do you encourage them to, to allow the word of Christ to dwell in them? What sort of things would you adv uh, suggest to people? In day-to-day -day life? Yeah. Um, I think vitally important. Um, which is, I guess, going to sound like an obvious answer, but vitally important is reading the Bible and being alongside people that are reading the Bible and reading the Bible with each other. I remember hearing um, Chuck Swindle, I think it was, saying, you know, in one of his preachers, he said, do you want to know what God's saying to you today? Read the Bible. Do you want to know what God says to you about your life? Read the Bible. Do you want to know what God says to you about your job? Read the Bible. Do you want to know what God says to you about your kids and your family? Read the Bible. It's like, oh, yeah. And I think the more, it sounds like an obvious answer, but for me, the older I get and the more, I guess, life experience I get, the more I realise all the time actually getting into the word of God and grappling with it and figuring it out and, and really studying scripture. For me, that, that would be, if an 18-year-old said to me, I want to write songs, I want to lead worship, what should I do? one of the very first things I'd say is study the Bible, grapple with it, get alongside people that can help you grapple with it, help you understand it, so that we don't end up with, 
you know, it's obviously been some fairly high profile songwriters recently that have kind of hung up their guitar straps and gone, I never really believed this in the first place. I'm off now. I knew how to write songs. I was taught how to write songs. I was taught how to tug at the heartstrings and write songs that said things to people of how they should feel and react and so on. But, you know, there's been some quite high profile people that are saying, I never really believed it myself. And I'm just, I'm done with it now. So, which is, you know, heartbreaking when that happens and heartbreaking when it happens to people or with people that you thought were writing songs for the church based on their own life and their own, you know, integrity. And it turned out that actually they were professional songwriters that knew how to write a worship song that people would want to sing. So, so much more important to me that, and for myself, it's so more important for my own life to be real and reflect who I am in God because of who he is and what Jesus has done and and to actually understand those truths and, you know, really get to the bottom of books like Galatians, you know, and Romans and, you know, to really, really figure it out and understand it and take it on board so that you can then write songs and lead worship and lead people, you know, would be one of the only things I'd say. Yeah, and I think, you know, a word to, to leaders as well is I have seen it often that people who are involved in the the nuts and bolts of Christian services, let's say, whether it's people in production, people in the band, the meeting leaders, the preachers or whatever, when you've done it a long time, you recognise a lot of the mechanics involved. And sometimes when you you know you see the mechanics, people can get quite disillusioned, for want of a better word, or just cynical towards the process because you realise there's so much about this that appears to me to be just merely human, as though that's that negates the truthfulness of what's going on. Oh, you know, the Holy Spirit's doing this. Oh, no, I think psychologically this is happening. So we need to create this split between, again, spiritual, sacred, uh, or secular, and uh, and God and not God. And I think we're the worst judges of our own success or what God's doing at the best of times anyway. Yeah. But... Again, how what would you say to people who have maybe been involved? Because when you're involved in production, you're putting in long hours to yeah. fine-tune this instrument and, and you're sitting there going, oh, I know the congregation responding like this, not because of God, they might think, but because of the, the beats per minute in that song. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to people like that who had just been living in that headspace for so long they've become a little bit cynical? Yeah. I Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember it for myself. Um, so back when I was doing a lot of playing in worship bands at conferences and you know we I uh, played with um Paul Oakley who who wrote a lot of the New Frontiers song or, or you know was in New Frontiers wrote a lot of the songs we sing like Jesus loving my soul and who is there like you and that kind of thing and I played in Paul's band for about five years and Paul and I used to write songs together at that time and it was it it began you know I was like a kid just it was just so exciting to be worshiping God and playing guitar and worshiping God and going on a plane and getting somewhere and off the other end and worshiping God when it began. And without even really noticing when you've been doing that a long time, that goes from, okay, you get on a plane, you get off the other end, you play, you get back on the plane, you get off the other end, you go to the hotel, you have a shower, you go, you play. I remember there were times when it's really difficult because we'd be, you know, you'd start off this worship time, time of singing, with songs that were great and had really good truth in them and, you know, people were singing. And I remember there were times when I was standing there thinking, I've played this song 500 times in the last two years. 
and it was just, you know, autopilot. And it's really difficult because there's not much you can do about it. Um, and it, it's not so much cynical in terms of not believing it's real or not believing what's happening is real, but it's just this kind of autopilot thing where you just go, I can't engage with this in, at the moment because this is another conference with the same songs. I'm standing in the same place on a different stage singing the same backing vocals to the same song while people are engaging with God. And those might make me sound terrible, <laughs> I don't know, but just on a purely human level, I remember standing there at times just thinking, I don't really know why I'm doing this at the moment because I do love God, but at the moment I'd quite like to just go home to my family and my friends and go to church and go to a prayer meeting or you know, do something other than stand here on this stage with my guitar playing these songs. And I think that's the thing I don't miss most about doing that as a job because it was my living at the time and how I paid the bills and mortgage. Um, and I'm sure there are people that don't fall into that trap, I'm, I'm sure, but I know there are a lot that do because when you do the same thing all the time, all day, every day, in the same way, mm-hmm. there's sort of no way it can't become you know, just part of, this is what I'm doing at eight o'clock tonight. I'm playing this song again. Um, And it's also part of the challenge that we're in a culture that places such a high value on personal authenticity, personal authentic, emotional authenticity, whatever the phrase is, versus other cultures and other times that would have placed a bigger emphasis on the importance of duty and honour rather than personal authenticity. And it's not to say that actually doing something as a duty, because I'm, it's a responsibility I'm holding, and I might not be emotionally engaged, but that's not wrong. But we're so trained to think, oh no, it has to be yep. your, you know, your sweet sixteen heart song moment yep. every time. Yep. Otherwise, it's not genuine. I know worship leaders, anyone who who does ministry regularly, you think sometimes I've just got to do it because I've got to do it. Like people need me to do it, and it's not actually if, if it's about the word of God and the spirit of God, then it's not really about me and my heart all the time. <laughs> and trying to help people navigate that, I, I just know when I, you know, for any Christian workers, when I, when I first started working for a church in ministry one of the hardest challenges is when Jesus goes from being your saviour to your colleague <laughs> and then you have days off you're like that's my colleague like I don't, I don't want to see my colleague on my day off but actually cultivating and looking after your own heart before God in and amongst all the nuts and bolts of your ministry that's why you know some worship leaders I know of are, who were who in the charismatic worship scene are now in very different church streams very different styles of worship because that's the charismatics like I say charismatics not the right word actually contemporary music scene that just became noisy to them and busy and 120 beats per minute all the time actually there's nothing wrong in the more reflective silent kind of expressions of worship and trying to have a broader palette when it comes to our worship yeah. but so so sorry I interrupted but yeah just general kind of comments then and help to people who are experience that similar kind of trap of being stuck and borderline cynical yeah I mean yeah I I never got cynical but it did just become like you say you know it's what you do that day it's what you do as a job and I I think for me and probably I guess for a lot of people that do music when my love of music which was my hobby when I was a teenager suddenly became my job so I didn't have a hobby anymore because my hobby was my job so now suddenly it's oh I've got to do this thing today because it's my job now which then when you pull into the equation oh and I love worshiping God and now that's part of my job as well you kind of there there was a season where I, I did kind of go 
well, my hobby is now my job. My love of worshipping God in this context with these gifts is also now my job. And if I don't have enough work, I can't pay my mortgage very easily. And when all that becomes just facts of life, it's pretty difficult. I couldn't do that again as a job. I wouldn't want to do that again as a job. For me, it wouldn't be the right thing. I suppose what, yeah, what you're saying is there's this, um, with anything that we do, you need a grace from God. You know, you might use the word calling, but you certainly need a grace from God to be able to do it. And if, if it's not life-giving, as you use your word, um, then it's not necessarily the thing you should be doing right now. Yeah. You actually need to look after, you know what I mean? The, the Proverbs, guard your heart because <laughs> it's the wellspring of life. And if you're stuck in something that is producing cynicism or just robbing you of joy, stop it right now because your joy is really important and you find your joy in Christ and in doing what Jesus has called you to do. Um so, you know, you talk about the importance of truth in songs. And I was only talking with someone recently that when we talk about truth, what I think often we're, we're meaning is, I was just reflecting, reading something recently in the scriptures, the, the things that most regularly produce the kind of healthy fear of God that is life-giving and wisdom are the, seeing the wisdom of God in the cross or seeing the wisdom of God in creation, you know, and then we could all think of songs where we sing about creation. <laughs> and we don't actually have enough of them. Perhaps perhaps that's, that's a challenge. You know, I remember I, I listened recently to something that, particularly in this age where we're very concerned with, you know, the climate and stewarding the planet, actually to celebrate God in creation and God's gift of creation is useful. But the comment is really just about, um, when we talk about truth and writing songs and choosing songs for church, it's perhaps trying to help people to see what fuels the heart most isn't the melody. That might get the feet going. It's actually seeing the wisdom of God in the cross. So the gospel in the songs, um, is that something you'd agree with? Yes. <laughs> definitely. That's a rubbish question. Absolutely, <laughs> definitely, yes, I would. I was like, here's a point. Do you agree with it? Good. Right, next question. <laughs> yes. yes, I do. No, I do, definitely. As I said, you know, even this, this Sunday where... Obviously, everybody is going to be thinking Russia, Ukraine, and so on. The songs that we're doing this Sunday, it you know, it leads us to the cross, mm. and you know, it should. I understand all this stuff about music theory. Does it make you quite suspicious of emotion and suspicious of songs that just get you tapping your feet? And do you kind of monitor the sort of songs you're seeing your kids listen to? Are you, are you not? And does it, did it make you just kind of suspicious of the world and the, its influences? <laughs> you know, when you see the, the tools and the tricks of the the trades that motivate human behaviour, it doesn't. Um, I think I think because you know, thinking back to you know, fifty years ago when. Motown was a hit factory, you know, as the big office block with people writing songs all day and handing them to the right person to go and record and go and sing. And I think what you know, we would sort of say today is, oh, that was such a amazing vintage, pure time of pop, unlike now when it's all manufactured. You go, actually, Motown was manufactured probably more than pop is today. We just don't really associate it with manufactured pop. We associate it with artistry. So it, it doesn't worry me at all um, that songs are manufactured, partly because, kind of going back to what we started with, if there are things that just work because they work, because people 
identify with them and it makes us not have an emotion created for us that someone's saying, I'm going to manipulate this thing out of you. But if actually that thing actually helps you to engage in worshipping God, well, that's not a bad thing. And if that tempo works because it works, because it helps people in a non-manipulative way, that's a good thing. So I think in, in some ways, I don't see it as a negative because I can see it as a positive of actually using it well. Yeah, without getting into the, you know, rock and rolls from the devil kind of, which people are aware that Christians have always been very suspicious. And there's healthy caution there, but it's understanding what we're really cautious about is sometimes the message behind it and just them being mindful of the, the tricks that can be used to manipulate someone to believe the message by bypassing the head to get to the heart and then by that changing the way that people live in a way that isn't um, gospel-centred. Um, before we go, is there um, anything else in your mind or heart that you'd like to just share as we close? I, yeah, I guess sort of, like I've said a couple of times, probably already. The older I get, the more experienced I get, or the more experience I have, rather, um, the more I keep being driven and making sure I drive myself to the Word of God as my primary, you know, where am I going to look? I'm going to look into the Bible to figure life out. And I probably, if I'd said to my younger self that 25 years ago, I'd have saved myself some trouble along the way if I'd done it. But actually, I, I meant to say last when you when you brought that point up earlier about the importance of the truth. I think it's important as well that people hear that Christianity isn't isn't just for literate people, because um, actually the way people learn about the song, learn about the world, is through truth. And the responsibility for literate types, people who like reading the truth, who then communicate that to others disciple others using songs that do this i mean historically that's how ch- you know christians have been trained in discipleship like you yeah. said through memorization through songs yeah. and it's important that we then those who have the you might say the privilege of literacy <laughs> who like reading and engaging with words and ideas have the responsibility to make sure that what we're communicating to others is from the pure source of truth. Yeah. Rather than putting that burden on everyone, oh, you must, you must be, you must love reading. But helping people engage with the Bible through audio, through songs, is uh, is really key. I should have linked it to music, shouldn't I? <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I was doing as we closed. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Martin, and for being with us and it's for your, your wisdom. And if people do have any questions about songwriting, please direct them to Martin at the British and Irish Modern Music Institute. <laughs> BIM for short. Thanks for being with us, Martin. Thanks, Jess. <laughs>